All right, we're going to continue our series devoted, so you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2 again. We're looking in the book of Acts. And we've been spending the first month of this year in a series called Devoted. We're considering that passage where, where Luke gives us this sort of summary paragraph of the early church. In Luke, in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 30, 42, he says this, And they, these thousands of new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so we looked a couple of weeks ago at their devotion to God's Word. Luke goes on to say they also devoted themselves to the fellowship, to, to the koinonia. We talked about how that idea is this sense they shared a common life together. Well, he goes on to describe what we're going to look at this morning. So follow along with me as we continue in verses 44 and 45. Hear God's holy and authoritative Word. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. God's Word, may He write its truth upon our hearts. Today, we're sort of getting to the hard part of the Devoted series. The part that maybe makes us want to pause and say, you know, Acts 2, it's really cool. I I love the picture we see. But I don't know that we should expect those sorts of things to happen today, right? And I think when we think that way, in reality, we might mean we shouldn't be expected to live such a devoted life today, right? It's it's cool a couple weeks ago to think of devotion to God's Word. Lots of amens devotion to to koinonia and and sharing a common life together. People leaving the service saying, I want that. Devotion to radical generosity that might lead some of us to sell possessions and give them to the needy. Well, I'm sure Luke is describing a really cool thing they did, but I don't think it's meant to be normative in any way, shape, or form. That's how we might react to that. But but he's giving us this picture of a summary of the early church. It's not just this blip on the radar screen. In the chapters that follow, in Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, as the church continues to grow, he's filling out what he's describing for us in this passage. Acts 2, 42-47 is the flyby, and then he drops into little episodes and illustrations where we see this lived out. He's showing us something. Now, Luke the author of Acts, talks about issues related to wealth and possessions and money with a remarkable consistency. If you go back and read Luke's Gospel, he turns his attention to those things in ways the other Gospel writers aren't as intentional to do. He's constantly highlighting the significance that Jesus placed on the topics of things like the rich and the poor. He continues that theme in the book of Acts. Really, you could read these two books together. A lot of scholars talk about Luke-Acts as if they're two parts to the same book. There's 11 places in the book of Acts, 11 different episodes, places and, and references where Luke looks at the idea of possessions and he portrays how the disciples are interacting with their possessions in a positive light. In other words, he portrays the way they're, they're dealing with their money and their stuff in a way that Luke wants us to see reflects the teachings of Jesus. And on the flip side, there's seven negative portraits. Seven places where he shows us in the book, people are relating to their material possessions 
in a way that's out of step with the kingdom. Luke's doing that for a reason. What's he saying to us? He's telling us the authenticity of our allegiance. The authenticity of our discipleship, of our belief to the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, is evidenced by what we do with our possessions. Our authenticity, the reality, the truthfulness of our belief that Jesus was who He said He was and that He is right now risen and reigning is evidenced in the way we live out and interact with our money and our homes and the things that God gives us to steward. Think of Luke 16.13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted. That sounds familiar. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's Luke's point. Now, to fill out what he gives us a glimpse of in Acts 2, remember we said there's, there's portraits? Well, there's two illustrations he gives us of giving in the early church. One of them is a positive illustration. Another one's a negative one. There's multiple episodes, but these are two that come right away in the narrative as we continue on in the, in the upcoming chapters, the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. And Luke wants us to think back to his description in Acts 2 when we read those things. So this is when he says, They're sharing their possessions. They're selling things and giving them away. Wow, what does that look like? Well, the end of Acts 4 and the beginning of Acts 5 shows us. First, a positive illustration. He tells us in Acts 4.32, Now, the full number, so the whole church, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. That's a sweet phrase. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus... Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. When verse 32 says they had everything in common, that should sound familiar in our series. It's the adjective of the word we talked about last week. Koinonia. Fellowship. What do we say koinonia and fellowship was? It's to share a common life. That's what fellowship and community is. Now Luke continues that theme and says part of their fellowship is they shared what they possessed and had it together. Their sharing of a common life didn't include everything except for their stuff. It really did extend to all that they were and all that they had. They're walking out, you could say, their partnership in the gospel. That's one of the things that word means. Koinonia means to be partnered with someone. Well, they're walking out their partnership in the the fact that they're, they're sharing possessions as if they really truly are partnered. 
So Barnabas becomes sort of this representative snapshot of the community. And he's a name we're going to see again and again and again in the book of Acts. He becomes a significant figure in the community. But he shows us in what he does, he exemplifies for us a body of mutual care where there's this deep sense of sharing together. Luke's not just kind of telling us about community. He's showing us this is what community looked like for these early Christians. Look how committed they are to one another. Look at the form for for one another that their love takes. The way in which they they love one another practically gets, gets fleshed out. You see it in outrageous generosity. Radical generosity. And the, the tense of the verbs here shows you it's actually this ongoing thing. It's this sense where they're selling property and they're sharing together and it's a continual overflow. It's, it's something that's kind of continuing to happen as, as people are added. People don't necessarily sell everything all at once, but they're, they're sort of selling things as there's need. What you're not getting is there's this sense in Acts 2 of these people that are just like, whoa, Pentecost, this is amazing, I'm full of the Spirit! Let's go do something really rash and sell everything I own. And then like a few years later, like, wow. I, I don't know if that was the best idea. I don't know that I'll ever do that again. That's not what Acts 2 is showing us. It's showing us in the, in the tense of the verbs that there's this ongoing commitment to crazy, out-of-their-minds, radical generosity. And the generosity is voluntary. No one's forcing their hand. There's actually communities in Judaism. The place where they get the Dead Sea Scrolls from, that's a sect, this Judaic sect that kind of lives off. And to be a part of the Qumran communities, you had to give up everything you own. It's, it's a right of entrance. In fact, if you, if you claim to give up everything you owned and they found out you held some stuff back, they cut your food portion down. <laughs> they put you on like three quarters rations. So to be a part of that community, you had to come in, and it was sort of like a proto-communism. You are giving everything and putting it in the pile, and everybody just kind of delves it out. That's not what's going on here in Acts. There's a voluntary sense. They want to be generous. Peter's not standing up saying, you have to... That, that house? That sweet piece of property? That real estate? That's a kitty corner from the temple, man. That's like a cherry spot. you got to sell that and get some proceeds. So you need to sell that. Peter doesn't say that. They're stirred up. Grace is upon them. They voluntarily do it. It's a beautiful thing. You get this sense. There's also this ongoing selling and sharing. It's not like nobody has anything to themselves anymore, right? Because what does it say in Acts 2? They're, they're sharing, they're doing all this stuff. And then the next verse it says, and they're going to the temple every day. And then what are they doing? They're going to each other's homes and breaking bread. So people still have homes, but they're sharing their homes. Some people are selling their homes and giving the proceeds to the church and, and to be generous to the needy. And other people are saying, I don't feel compelled to sell my home, but I feel compelled to share it and open it up. The sense you get is the early church still has personal possessions. But they don't consider them private possessions. They've got personal possessions, but in Christ their thinking has been changed and they don't view them as as private. 
They're personal things given to me by God to steward for the good of those around me that God is saving and calling into newness of life in this community. I had a friend growing up. His parents were remarkably generous. They opened up their home to us almost every night. We could come over there. And, and they, had, they had a nice house. It wasn't a crazy house. But they just said, hey, our basement is open to you guys. Come over any night and just be here and spend time. And so we would come to their house and oftentimes we'd be there and his mom would order us pizza and bring it downstairs. This sense of our home is your home. Come, come and partake of it. They had, they had a cabin, this place called Lake Okaboji, which is, it's kind of humorous. It's part of the Iowa Great Lakes. Anytime you have to put like your state designation in front of the Great Lakes, it's probably not quite like Lake Superior or Lake Michigan. But Okaboji is a big deal if you're from Iowa or southern Minnesota. People know about Okaboji. And they had a cabin at Okaboji at the lake. And they allowed us basically every weekend to go up there and to spend time at the cabin. When his parents were there, they didn't just like, oh, here's some cereal. They would bust out steaks and burgers and feed us. And his dad would pay for the gas in the boat. There was just this sense of, we've been blessed and we want to extend that blessing to you. We want, to, we want you to share in the goodness of what God's given us. Now there's an application to be made here. This ongoing generosity that Luke portrays for us, it doesn't stop two days after Pentecost. It doesn't stop a month after Pentecost. One commentator says there's a, probably an idea that what's being described in Acts 2, 42-47 is sort of a summary of the first like five or six years of the early church before the Gentiles start being wrapped in. Well, for ongoing generosity to happen like that, you know what has to happen? Parents have to extend to their kids the joy of giving. This stuff doesn't keep going. There's testimonies of the early church and the way they reached out to cities that persecuted them and the plague broke out. This is, this is in the 2nd century. So, so several generations after the early church, a plague breaks out in a city. This city had previously persecuted the Christians. Plague comes. Rudimentary medicine. You don't know what's going on. You just run for the hills to get away. And the bishop said no. If Christ is real, if the resurrection is true, we can't abandon these sick people to their fate. We're going to stay. We're going to invite them into our homes. We're going to care for them. That kind of radical mindset happens because parents pass on the grace of generosity to their children. They model it for them. They teach it to them. Your kids need to know if you're generous. What does that look like? Son, come here. I'm working on the budget and I want you to see how we're thinking about this. How we're setting this aside to give to this. We're going to stamp on the fridge the compassion thing so we know and remember we're giving to that. Son, I want you to see my bonus from work. I want you to see the way we're... I'm going to put some of this in savings because that's responsible. And I'm going to take this chunk and this might seem really weird to the world to take this much of the chunk of my bonus I'm going, to, I'm going to give some of it to Forest Avenue. I'm going to give some of it to the church because, because God calls us to be generous. Imagine Barnabas has a son. 
The land is his inheritance. Barnabas takes his son and they go to kind of the, the highest point in this little land that they own. He has his son stand up there and he says, Son, do you see this? This is your inheritance when I die. But we have a better inheritance. So I'm going to go and I'm going to sell this land. I'm going to take it. I'm going to set the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. And I want you to come with me, son. And I want you to know I'm not doing this to rob you of what's yours when I die. I'm doing this so you understand what awaits us. What Christ has for us is more real than what we're standing on right now. Pass on the grace of generosity. That's the positive illustration. And then there's a negative illustration. In Acts 5, chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. At this point, if you don't know this, we're thinking, awesome, another person! This is really cool! And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Luke goes on to say, his wife comes in three hours later. Peter says, tell me about the sale of the land. How much did you sell it for? Oh, such and such an amount. Sure that's how much? Yes, absolutely sure. Those feet you hear at the door are the ones who carried your husband's body. And they're here for you also. And she died as well. The chapter break between 4 and 5 is really unfortunate. Those aren't like inspired part of the text. Like Luke doesn't have chapter 4. And we're going to call chapter 4 chapter 5. People start dying because they're given in the wrong ways. That's something we bring to kind of mark it up so we can kind of get our rhymes around it. In Luke's mind, these are two illustrations set side by side so we would read them together and compare them to each other. Acts 2 says they're devoted to this sense of what Christ has done when He claims them. And part of it is this radical, outrageous, out-of-your-mind, crazy generosity. And then Acts 4 and Acts 5, he says this is what it looked like. And it's a chilling story, isn't it? Luke doesn't give us a sugar-coated Christian community. Anybody who wants to look at Acts is like, ah, Luke is just trying to make this look cooler than it really was. Yet, not really. Like he's showing us somebody who gave, but lied about how they gave, and they got struck down dead. He's not pretending like the Jerusalem church is, is impeccable. In a couple chapters, he's going to tell us there's widows who are starving. 
he shows us the amazing ways this church is stirred to generosity. And he also warns us that some people tried to manipulate the situation. Ananias and Sapphira see what's going on. It's like, man, Barnabas sells this land and he comes and lays it down. And it's like, yeah, Barnabas! This, you know, like, go teach your kids about Barnabas. Tell, tell your kids a story about Barnabas. He's getting acclaim. It's impressive. It's, wow! People marveling at the generosity. And it's not just Barnabas. That's, that's illustrative of lots of people doing this. And they're kind of getting caught up in like, I want some of that credit. I want to look cool like that. I don't want to be one of those people that like comes. It's like it, they lay it at the apostles' feet. It's not like the apostles like walk around arm in arm all day and it's like, we never go without the other 11. You know, there's this sense the apostles are gathered. There's a gathering of God's people. And so in the midst of worship, people are coming and they're laying their gifts down. Like, Man, I want to have that kind of going to the front. Yeah. Right here, I'm going to lay it down. Check it out. Lay it down. Grill emotional. I was like, that was my prized piece of property. That's kind of what's going on. They want to see the community react. They want the accolades. But they don't actually want to make the sacrifice. In essence, they commit financial fraud. They, they try and deceive the apostles and the community. One commentator says, what they do, their actions are a lie against fellowship. It's a lie against body life. Luke makes it clear, if Ananias had desired, he could have kept it. Ananias, wasn't it yours before you sold it? If you wanted, you, this is voluntary. You don't, you don't have to do this. He even says... You could have kept some of it after you sold it. Wasn't it still under your authority? Right? You could have gradually donated it. But you premeditated deception. You conspired with your wife. And there's a, an amazing... Peter, Peter knows. like The Spirit just opens his mind to it. And he knows. This is fraudulent. Here's what's startling about the story. Ananias and Sapphira's evil is simply this. They desire to appear more generous than they are. Now think about that. They desire to appear more generous than they are. And the Lord strikes them down. They actually are generous. They're selling their property and giving a chunk of the proceeds to the church. There's a semblance of generosity going on. So what are they doing wrong? They're lusting for human affirmation. Maybe, maybe they want the influence they think is going to come from this. The respect. Maybe they just want people to think Remember that story about the widow and her two little coins and she gave so sacrificially? That's like Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 9, Peter says to Sapphira, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. They try to manipulate the apostles. It says they lay it down at the apostles' feet. Just like Barnabas, they're laying it down. To lay it down means you're surrendering authority to it. I'm laying this down. I'm giving the money, and there's no strings attached. We trust you, Peter. We trust you're going to distribute it. We trust your leadership. We trust you're going to put it where it needs to go. And that's really what generosity is. It's giving with an open hand. It's giving without ultimatums. Without demands. Without, without expecting any sort of preferential treatment. It's the opposite of T. Boone Pickens. Like the big booster for Oklahoma State. It's like He's got like oodles and oodles of billions of dollars. And so it's like he comes and he builds them this crazy stadium. It's like, oh, like a quarter billion dollars that he donates. But he expects, I have given you a quarter billion dollars. So when I come along and say, that coach ain't performing, son, I expect that coach is going to be on the bread line next week. There's expectations. I'm get, it's like these, you know, like the college boosters is a helpful way to think about it. This whole drama with Mac Brown, it's like, the guy's actually kind of winning games this year, but it didn't matter. The big boosters with all the money say, hey, we give money to this program and we're not happy with him. Get him out of there. That's not what the New Testament envisions. They lay it down. Ananias and Sapphira are different. That's what Peter's saying. When you had it, it was under your authority. You could have done with it what you wanted. You didn't have to share all of it. You could have kept some back. You just had to be honest with us. Instead, you... You pretended. You lied. That's what's shocking about Jesus teaching about the widow and her two copper coins. Right? If the leaders of of the synagogue or the temple, if they're going to allow the size of the gift to determine who has influence, it's the widow, Jesus says, who should have influence. Right? That's His point. Luke 21.3 Truly, I tell you, the poor widow has put more in than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This amazing example. Luke says, this is a scary thing, Satan filled their heart. The idea with that sense of filling is that Satan has gained a sense of control and and influence over their actions. It's a total reversal of of how believers are being described in the rest of the book. Who's filling the rest of the believers? The Spirit of the risen Christ. The Holy Spirit is filling them. To be filled is this sense of you're filled by the Spirit. You're under the influence of the Spirit. You're controlled by the Gospel. This is a bone-chilling turn of events. Ananias and Sapphira are filled by the influence of Satan. It shows us there is an inherent spiritual dimension to our possessions, right? Why does this happen? Because Satan is pressing against them. What they do with their money, what they're pretending to do, is directly tied to their spiritual health. You notice the other thing? It's not like Satan's sitting back like, man, I thought I had like the ultimate game plan. I killed Jesus. 
And then God goes and raises him from the dead. And now this church is blowing up. I quit. I'm going home. No, no. He sees what's going on. And he is deceptively, craftily trying to infiltrate the community. Trying to cause points of separation and division in their midst. The judgment against them shows in no uncertain terms. Satan might be tempting them. He might be pressing against them. But they're totally responsible for their actions. And in the end, like Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira have acted according to their heart. We don't get that sense in our culture, do we? When somebody does something wrong, it's like, I'm a good person. I just made a mistake. That's not what the Bible says. It says, no, you did what was in your heart. This is a compelling quote by David Platt. The lesson I learned is that the war against materialism in our hearts is exactly that. A war. It is a constant battle to resist the temptation to have more luxuries, to acquire more stuff, to live more comfortably. It requires strong and steady resolve to live out in the gospel, in the middle of an American dream that identifies success as moving up the ladder, as getting the bigger house, as purchasing the nicer car, buying the better clothes, eating the finer food, and acquiring more things. There's a war. The lifestyle of the kingdom is different. You want to know why Luke talks about it so much? It wasn't like Jesus is like telling these parables about the poor and the rich and the widow and her two coins. It's like people are like, why is he telling these stories? That doesn't make sense. I don't, that's not relatable. It's not like Jesus is telling those stories just because he wants American Christians 2,000 years in the future to feel like, oh, this applies to our culture. This is no like unique temptation for us. He's telling those parables, and the crowd is like, whoa. That hits close to home. That, that's stunning. That, that's sharp. There are lessons here. It's better to give in secret than in public. Better no one knows of your generosity. No one have an inkling. It's better to... Here's, I think, part of it. It's better to appear less generous and actually be exceeding what people think you're giving, than to try and to appear, to pretend explicitly or implicitly that you give more than you really do. God knows what you give. Who cares what your neighbor thinks? And God knows what you give. Don't let the negative illustration, though, damper the incredible sense of what is happening in this community. Part of giving in faith isn't like, are my motives right? Like, I don't want to have the Ananias and Sapphira. Like, when the offering plate comes, like, this is my heart that I wanted to give today, but I just wasn't sure. Like, I didn't want to get zapped. That's not how God treats it. He steps in in a powerful way to illustrate to His people at the beginning and outset of the Christian community 
I want you to be generous. Sacrificially, radically, insanely generous. And I want you to do it from an open hand. So what should we take away? What do we see from this picture? First, this is compelling. It's compelling for us as we read it. And it was compelling for everyone who encountered the early church. This idea of generosity is tied to their sense of friendship. The notion in 4.32 that they had one heart and one soul, it's a Hebraic idiom for they have intimate friendship. Their, their hearts are together. These are, these are my friends. The early church is a truly remarkable community. There, there's like a, a palpable unity. It's like you can feel, you can taste it. They are together. They don't just talk about unity. They don't like, we need to strive for unity. They are united. Their hearts are knit together in Christ. I think part of what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira is God stepping in at this critical moment in the early church and saying, here are some who appear to be in your midst whose hearts are not with you. And I'm going to immediately show you. And I'm going to separate them from you. The believers in the early church are observably different. The world noticed the uniqueness of the early church. How did it notice? In part, by the way they handled their money. They're drastically, radically, astoundingly generous. It is fair to say they shocked people around them. There's probably father-in-laws who are sitting there coming up like, Samuel... When I gave you permission to marry my daughter, it was with the expectation that this was going to be your inheritance. And now you've gone and joined those, those Nazarenes, those, those Jesus crazies, and you've sold what you're supposed to use to care for my daughter. You're crazy. What are you doing? I mean, that's, that's probably going on. Hanukkah might have gotten a little tense. Relational dynamics. The way they shared together, the, the way they sold possessions, it didn't go unnoticed. It says in Acts, they had favor with all the people. That's not saying they had favor with each other. It's saying, no, everybody in Jerusalem, there's favor with everybody in Jerusalem. They're like watching this just like, this is crazy. I don't know if I want to be a part of it, but this is cool to watch. It's compelling. Jerusalem sees the authenticity of their lives in part through their insane generosity. And it's like, it's like moths to a light. They're just drawn to it. And here's the thing. This is remarkable in Jerusalem. Who are most of the people in Jerusalem? Jews. What's that special thing they have? It's like five books and oh, the Pentateuch, the Torah. What does that talk about? A religious law, a religious requirement that you give, that you tie, that the first fruits, the first 10% of what you earn goes to the temple. This is a city that's already not like other cities. This is a city that knows what it is to set aside the first 10% and go and bring it and give it to God. In the midst of that city, they're seeing these people and they're like, whoa, this is generosity. 
of a level we have never seen. There's no sense in Acts that this is in place of the tithe. That would actually probably have ruffled feathers this early on. If all of a sudden they just stopped giving to the temple, we'd read about that in the text. Like the leaders wouldn't just be mad they're healing people, they'd be mad like there are thousands of people that should be giving to the temple and aren't anymore. There's this sense they're doing it above and beyond. And Jerusalem takes note. The end of Acts 2 says, the Lord is adding to their number. I don't want providence, I don't want us to be generous so we have the coolest stage with the best lights, the best speakers. I don't want like sound guys to come in like, man, going back to that church because their subwoofer like has like multiple levels of tones that I've never heard before, and that's why I want to worship there. But it's because our people are generous, so we've got these really cool things. I don't want us to give and be generous so our building is the most amazing or the biggest or the most immaculate. Most people probably aren't coming in and looking at our lights and thinking, wow, they are trendsetters. They must really give generously to have lights like that. It's like retro. <laughs> That's what we're going for, folks. Retro lights. This is all intentional. All because of your generosity, we have those retro lights. <laughs> That's that's not what we're aiming for. I want us to be stupid generous. I want us to be radically sacrificial. I want us to be out of our minds open-handed so that people are compelled to believe the Gospel. So when they look at us and say, why would you live like that? We say, because Jesus is risen. Because He's alive. Because He's enthroned in heaven. And He rules all that there is. And by the word of His power, He holds everything together. And He's promised everything we give, we're going to get back tenfold. That He's going to give us Himself. And that there will be joy in it. That's why I want us to be generous. The Roman Emperor Julian, he was one of those emperors that is like not on the nice list for Christians. He, he was against Christianity and he's trying to undermine, he's kind of understandably looking at his empire and there's like this sect of like, and in his mindset, it's like there's like all these people, you know, you've got like Greeks and all these different people that surround you, got people in the Gaul and you got these, these weird Germanic tribes you're trying to, to overcome eventually and there's all these, these folks in Africa that you that you oversee. And then there's this little tiny group of people, these Jews, and they're kind of scattered all over. And it's this little tiny sect, but they can kind of be a... You know, they're just a thorn in your side. And now within this little tiny sect, there's like another little tiny sect. It's these Nazarenes. But they're spreading, and they're infiltrating, and they're gaining influence. And they don't say Caesar's Lord. They say Jesus is Lord. And so Julian like other emperors, wants to undermine it. He wants to stop its spread. He does what he can to frustrate their efforts. And he writes a letter to a friend describing his frustration. He's been impotent to stop, to stem the tide of Christianity. Acts would say he's been impotent to stop the spread of the Word. But this is what he says. Julian, the Roman emperor. There... These Nazarenes, these Christians, these Jesus followers, their success, the fact we can't stop them, lies in their charity to all. They take care, not only of their own poor, but of ours as well. 
you know you're being generous. When the people against you, the emperor sitting in Rome, feels like he's futile to stop the spread of your passion because your generosity is something he can't match. One of the main things that sets the Christians apart is the way they use their possessions. It's their attitude towards money. In a culture in Rome obsessed with materialism and consumption, how they regarded money and possessions and what they did with them set them apart. Could we say the same of us? What would it look like if they said the same as us? A consumeristic culture culture around us. A consumeristic culture will not be one to a crucified Christ by a consumeristic church. A consumeristic culture will not be one to a crucified Christ by a consumeristic church. Whatever disciples are made by a consumeristic church, they will gag on notions like sacrifice and suffering and persecution. They will choke on the very things Jesus said would mark His disciples in this world. They will stumble over the cost of discipleship even as they stumble over a crucified Christ whom they've never known. There are many people, unconverted believers, who have been led to invest in a Jesus completely separate from the generosity and sacrifice of the cross. And it doesn't happen out of nowhere. It happens from churches who worship a Jesus without a whisper of the cross, without a whisper of His self-giving love without a whisper of His Word saying, if they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. I read an article by a pastor, a blog post. He described an aha moment earlier this week. He was sitting with a woman and they were discussing the culture and interactions with the culture. And she said, yeah, just I'm realizing how hard it is to live this alternative lifestyle. She wasn't describing some sort of strange way of living within our culture. She was describing her life as a Christian. And he said, oh, that's it. They're not the alternative lifestyle. We are the alternative lifestyle. We are the weird ones. We're the alternative ones. We're, we're the strange ones. Giving like this ain't normal. Living in community like this is not normal. Being devoted to the Word like this and saying, I'm going to sit underneath it. I'm going to conform my life to it. It is going to push me and press me in ways that aren't comfortable. But because it's true and it's God's Word, I'm going to let it hold sway in my life. That's not the kind of stuff that's celebrated. We are the alternative lifestyle. But it can be compelling. Second thing we see about the generosity, it stems from grace. Luke states in verse 33, so strategically, and great grace was upon them. 
And then he immediately goes on to describe this unreasonable generosity. He's making a point. The source of this crazy open-handedness is God's work in their hearts. It's not guilt. It's not manipulation. It's not willpower. It's not like these are people that are just like, we're really ascetic. We just like to suffer, and so we want to give away stuff so that we're hungry all the time. And my nice house is too nice. I'm going to wear hair shirts. That's not what's going on. It's grace. Grace is happening. These aren't special people. These are the people that Peter said a couple chapters earlier, you crucify the Lord. And now, I'm going to sell everything I have. Because I might have crucified Him. But God raised Him. Grace, I love how it says it, has acted upon them. They're not gracious. That's not the point. Luke's not saying, it's a grace-filled church because these are special grace. No, grace is upon them. God God has has put grace in their hearts. He's covered them with grace. It it blankets them. It saturates them. Right before the illustration of generosity in Acts 4.32, what happens? Luke says, they prayed. They prayed. And what happens? They're filled with the Spirit. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Well, they proclaim the Gospel, Luke says right after that. They proclaim the Word. They teach the Word. They preach the Word with boldness. At one point, they're going to get beaten and they come back and it's like a party. Why are you partying? We were counted worthy to suffer for the name. We were worthy of Jesus. We're partakers of Him. That's kind of boldness, right? Filled with the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit in the sense they're serving and they're fellowshipping. They're living life together and Jerusalem is saying, whoa. I want people to love me like that. When I'm stumbling, I want people to care. They're filled in their, in their worship with the Spirit's power. And they act generously. Right after he says they're filled with the Spirit, he says they're crazy generous. He's showing us a connection. The generosity of Barnabas is the very image of godliness. God isn't simply giving. What we see in Jesus is that God is self-giving. Our God is radically generous. And everything He gives is from Himself. When Paul challenges Believers who are living in this metropolitan, posh, culturally forward-thinking, wealthy city. Not Overland Park or Lenexa. Corinth. When he challenges them to be radically, world-befuddlingly generous, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, yet for your sake, He became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Radical generosity flows from an encounter with a radically generous God. These believers act this way because the Gospel has captured their hearts. It's not just something that describes them 
The gospel is something that defines them. These are people who are saved and they are shaped by God's grace. The gospel has taken root in their lives. The gospel is bearing fruit in their lives. The gospel is informing their decisions. It's defining the direction of their lives. The grace of Christ is active in their midst and so like Christ, they willingly become poor. They give even until it hurts. And they give joyfully and sacrificially. Why? Let me tell you about Jesus. You need to be taking care of my daughter. I gave her your hand in marriage, expecting that you could provide for her. Why are you doing this? Lobadiah, I want to respect you and I'm thankful for the hand of your daughter. But I think this is wise leadership. Because Jesus was raised. And that land that I sold, I got this prophetic sense Rome's going to come in and lay waste to Jerusalem in 70 AD, so it's not going to be worth anything anyway. No. The land I sold doesn't matter as much as the land that awaits me when Christ returns. Obadiah, I want you to know that your daughter and I, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that He could have reigned. But He was put to death. And we were in the crowd yelling out for Him to be crucified. And I was like seeking sort of a thrill and I went and saw. And I saw Him get pounded and and whipped. And I was mocking these like little dinky crowd of people crying over Him. But I saw Him two weeks later. And He was alive. And so I know you think this looks like radical generosity. Crazy, stupid thing to do with my possessions. But in light of Jesus being raised and enthroned, I'm not giving anything. It stems from grace. It involves obedience. Let me be brief on these last two. As soon as we say generosity flows in part from obedience, some of us kind of get all tight in the stomach. It's not that they're being forced to give those. It's not that they're being pressured to sell their lands. What they're doing is just living out the ethics of the kingdom. In Luke twelve fifteen, Jesus said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus goes on to tell the story of a rich guy who keeps getting richer and starts building barns and all sorts of stuff, right? And then God comes and says, you fool. Today your life is required of you. That's not just a nice story Jesus tells. He's not just trying to shock people. He's not like a movie producer where it's like, I didn't see that coming. And then you just go home. he's, He's trying to teach us. He's trying to form reality for us. They're not just being called to give stuff away. We're not just being called to, 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 to build a big bonfire after the service today. 
If you really believe in Acts chapter 2, and you really believe in Acts chapter 4, we're going to give you a half hour to go home. We've lined up some U-Hauls, and I want you to load up all of your stuff. And we're going to come, and it's going to be like Texas A&M building the big bonfire before the game. We're going to build a huge bonfire, and we're going to burn all of our stuff. It's evil. We're going to burn it. And Johnson County's going to see, and they're going to... That's not what he's saying. It's not a call to kill materialism just by roasting it. It, It's a call to invest in the place where possessions matter and where possessions last. To invest in the place where the Father promises a million-fold return on your investment. Luke 12, 15 Jesus said, take care, be on guard against covetousness. Don't store up. Your your life doesn't consist in the abundance of these things. Your life doesn't consist in the 3,000 square foot home you want when you only have 2,000 square feet. Your life doesn't consist in the extra car. Your life doesn't consist in the really cool vacation. Your life doesn't consist in the 401k. Your life doesn't consist in those really cool headphones you want. Whatever it is, it doesn't consist of that. And then he says this in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It looks really stupid, really stupid to live for a new car with a cool navigation system that in four years is going to seem totally obsolete and might not even work because the technology has so surpassed it. To live for the newest iPhone when you've got one that works just fine. To live for whatever else it is when the king says, I have an inheritance stored up for you. You're living for like a little pile of dirt. You're living for it and you're like protecting it. And it's like people are coming around. You're destroying relationships because they might threaten your pile of dirt. Why don't you get along with it? Well, he wanted part of my pile of dirt. And so I had to destroy that relationship to protect my pile of dirt. That's kind of how people live. Families get destroyed because it's like my brother who I've loved for the last 40 years, when dad died, he got a bigger piece of the inheritance than I did. I don't love him anymore. He got a bigger piece of the pile of dirt. That's what Jesus' point is. They give because Jesus called them to give. They don't hoard because Jesus said, it's all dust. And they're generous because He says, this, it's not your home. And they give because it's an act of faith. Belief shapes their generosity. Look at both passages. You miss it if you read too quickly. In verse 44 of chapter 2, and all who believed, all who believed, all who were captured by faith in the risen Christ were together and had all things in common. And they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds. Acts 4.32, now the full number of those who believed 
were of one heart and soul. So no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Their generosity is owing to the life-altering perspective of Jesus, crucified and raised. The truth of the resurrection is bearing fruit all around them. Just before this, a lame guy gets healed. A guy who can't walk and sits every day in Solomon's portico, begging for money. There's a reason why he's there. There's this, this thing that Luke does with, he's sitting outside Solomon's portico and everyone's going into the temple. Lame people aren't allowed even into the temple. And so he's sitting out there. And then, this guy that's there every day gets healed. And he walks in the temple and it's like, he's jumping around screaming and praising Jesus. And everyone sees it and everyone's like, whoa. How did that happen? Right? The leaders of the temple call him to go, how did this happen? Yet Jesus, the guy you killed, him, he, he did that. They know. Barnabas doesn't sell his land because it's evil. He sells it because he believes he's got a better possession. He believes the truth of the risen Christ. They believed. These people believed. They knew. They lived as if the risen Christ is real. That's why you give generously. That's why you live in a way that's totally different from the world around you. That's why Paul says, if the resurrection isn't true, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because you should be living for that little pile of dirt. But, He is risen. Death couldn't hold Him. And He's enthroned above. I'm going to finish with this. John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to Myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know that the way to where I am going. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in My name, I will do it. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. The words of the risen Christ. I will not leave you as orphans. Barnabas, I'm not going to leave you landless and homeless. Poor widow giving your two copper coins. I will not leave you a widow. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live. And because I live, you also will live. Let's bow our heads.